Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and green offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Thus says the Lord, whose name is the God Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider your challenging words, we pray for insight and understanding on who you are, what kind of relationship you're calling us into with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're continuing on in our series, or teaching series that we started last week on the ancient book of Amos, one of the first prophets, recorded prophets of Israel, um, actually a man, as we talked about last week, who was from the southern province of uh, Judah, but was a prophet to the wayward people of Israel. Now, if you uh, want to get caught up from last week's message, you know you can go to adventhope.org, or we, got, we have audio or video podcasts that you can uh, listen or uh, watch, and we have some e- exciting things coming up in the future in this series, including our own Lincoln Alabaster. We'll be following up on chapter 7 to 9 next week. Lincoln, I'm excited. I know we all are. I know you are. Uh, yes. Um, anyway, today as we uh, look at chapters 3 through 6, we uh, recall that the first five chapters of Amos, God is articulating his uh, concern, his argument really, against Israel. These are his people, the people that he brought out of the land of uh, Egypt, Judah and Israel. They, they separated it as, a, as two uh, nations after the reign of Solomon, but God had brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. He brought them out. He established them, and now he has these harsh words for his own people, the people that he chose to be his vessels, to be his light to the world. In Amos chapter 2 and verse 6, a portion of the scripture that we looked at last week, he said to them, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to those who are oppressed. In Amos chapter 4, we read, Hear this, you cows of Bashan who are on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. And in Amos chapter 5 and verse 11, we read, God communicating to his people, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. 
In short, we see the argument that God has against his own people is that they have been acting with uh, injustice. They have been acting unfairly to the poor, to the oppressed, to the marginalized. The people were acting against God's own will. They had become wealthy. The, the, The nation had experienced prosperity, political prosperity, economic prosperity for several hundred years now. And so many of the residents were prosperous, self satisfied, and comfortable. And so had become complacent and were callous toward the needs of the oppressed, particularly the needs of the poor. This is God's argument to his own people. You have lost a heart for for justice and you are acting poorly toward the poor and the oppressed. In April of 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King was arrested in the city of Birmingham, Alabama. He had been uh, fighting nonviolently for justice for the black residents of what was then known as the most segregated city in America. Some of his uh, fellow clergymen in the South uh, objected to the course of action that he and others had taken that led to his uh, arrest, and they had called it unwise and untimely. In fact, they had written an article in the paper the paper was smuggled to him, and so he read this article from his fellow clergyman and uh, was inspired to respond. And so on the newspaper, on the actual newspaper, he started uh, writing what is now known as the letter from Birmingham jail. He was smuggled other pieces of paper and notes where he was able to start charting out this prolific uh, essay. And there he starts by saying, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Uh, Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. He's channeling, by the way, Amos here. Because remember that Amos was from the southern province of Judah, but he had been called by God to go to speak to the northern, uh, the northern territory of Israel. The king continues, like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all, indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outsider, agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Months later, in August of 1963, standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. King again appealed to the country using the words this time specifically of the prophet Amos. He said, we cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi can vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing to vote for. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Quoting again Amos chapter 5, Verse 24, Martin Luther King interpreted the words of Amos to have a particular 
relevance to the injustice of contemporary racism. And so we too recognize that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that the words of, the, of Amos apply to any time, any place where justice is allowed to fester. Now, um, Martin Luther King made an important observation informed again by these words of Amos. He observed that it was the, uh, the comfortable religious people that was feeding injustice, the complacent comfortable religious people that was feeding the injustices that were taking place at the time. He writes again, I must make two confessions, this is Dr. King, I must make two confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in this stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal Uh, but I cannot agree with your methods or direct action, who paternalistically believes he can see the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection." He continues, one last paragraph. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being uh, disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians passed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too, too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is weak, ineffectual, in voice, and uncertain in sound. So often it is the arch defender of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church. The power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they now are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. I I can't say that there ever has been a more prophetic word in uh, American uh, history. Uh, King speaking to the reality that we now face, the, the church often 
silent in the face of injustice to the point where people are, as we know by Barna studies as of recent, who are abandoning the church by droves, particularly the same young people that Dr. King spoke of, who see the church as having no voice in the injustices that are before the world. And so we think back to Amos chapter 6 and verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Israel of Amos' day was complacent during times of injustice. Uh, the Western church mirrors this complacent nature today. And the sins of, the, of ancient Israel are the sins of our church. Uh, consider the injustices that exist, just a small sampling. Again, uh, racism is alive and well. You know, the proliferation of smartphone video has brought to light uh, for many of us what our friends of color have known all along, that violent acts of racism didn't end in the 1960s. Uh, classism, which is highlighted by extreme income equality. Did you know that the U.S. ranks in the 30th percentile in income equality? That means that 70% of the countries in the world have higher rates of income equality than in the United States. Uh, gender inequality which is substantiated by the gender salary gap, the insidious crimes often against women that has been brought to light by the Me Too movement, and the continual crimes of domestic violence and on and on. Uh, child abuse. Why is it that religious groups are often the place that harbor child abusers? The church should be at the forefront of calling out injustices, but like in King's Day, the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is the arch defender of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. This is a condemnation, this is a prophetic, a word to a, a broken church. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is it, how is it that Christians, how is it that religious people, if we think back to the time of, of, of Amos, God's chosen people, but how is it that Christians today are often silent on issues of utmost importance? How is it that people have been specifically instructed to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the disenfranchised have become so weak in meeting the needs of those who are mistreated? What's gone on with us? What's happened? Why are people so complacent today? Well, I think there are a number of answers to that. I have uh, three thoughts to share with you on this, this subject. Why is it that religious people fall into complacent nature and allow injustice to go on while being silent? What's going on? First assertion is this, religious formalism is at the heart of a complacent nature of, of people of uh, faith. Uh, for, formalism, in Amos, cha Amos chapter 5, verse 21, we, we read again God's words, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. This is God. Talk to the people. By the way, in Leviticus, God establishes many of the religious practices that the Israelites were practicing. And so here he comes, and Amos announces, I hate those things that you've, you're doing. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. 
Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. You come, you worship, you do all those things that I told you to do, by the way, back in, in Leviticus. But now they're a stench to me. I won't accept them. You bring your choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. What is he talking? What's God's problem? This had become formal for people. The idea of coming and be part of religious service was just another thing, another tradition that you do and that you're a part of. This was the issue in Amos' day. The people had allowed their religious practice to become formal, to become tradition. And of course, we know that this is alive and well in the church today. The church, a lot of church life is just form. You show up when you're supposed to show up, there's service, you're there. There's no heart change, there's no transformation, there's no vibrant life of, of faith running through many of the communities in this country and around the world. And so we're complacent, but we feel like we're doing okay because at least we're part of a, a community. And so religious formalism, one of the elements that bring this, this sense of uh, security and complacency to a church that needs to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, secondly, uh, it's very clear that this was an issue for the, those in the time of Amos, but an issue for us today, idolatry. Idolatry is live and well in the church. In Amos chapter 5 and verse 26 we read, You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Amos is saying to the people of Israel in the, in the 8th century, you, you, you have other gods before me. I mean, this was one of the requirements in our relationship. No other gods before me. You put other gods before me. Yes, you have the religious formalism that I have established, but you're, meanwhile you're worshiping other gods. And once again, the church of today has is, is not abandoned idolatry. As individuals and as communities, we have harbored the spirit of idolatry. And we could pick out many uh, today, but I can think of two that jumped to mind. Uh, and I think, too, that, that Christians, Western Christians, maybe even particularly Adventists, you know, this is an Adventist community. I recognize that not everyone here is Adventist, but if you're here, you probably know enough about Adventism to recognize that Adventism has some idols. One of those idols is the sense and feeling that we've got special knowledge that nobody else has. We've come to some understandings about particular things or doctrines and beliefs that may be wonderful and good, but you've got to be careful because you can take wonderful and good things and make them ultimate things, and then they become idols. And when you've got idols, that leads to complacency because you feel like, oh, I've got it together. This, this, this thing, I've got knowledge. We also have the, the, the idolatry of feeling like we're special, an idol, an idol of identity. We're special people. Certainly this was, again, true of the people of Amos' day. They had been specifically chosen by God, rescued out of Egypt, established in this land, and there was just a sense that they're God's people. And whatever they do, eh, you know, didn't matter because they were God's chosen people. Again, the Western church, the Adventist church has a little of this going on, the remnant people. There's a specialness that's rooted in our identity of feeling like we've got it together, and this leads to complacency. And so religious formalism, idolatry, for us maybe in the form of, of feeling like we've got knowledge and we've got an identity as chosen people. And then finally, Amos is very clear on this issue, comfortable circumstances. 
You want complacency? Comfortable circumstances often go hand in hand. Amos chapter 6 and verse 14, talking again to the people of Israel. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Comfortable circumstances, not just referring to financial comfort, but the comfort of of time and means and and space that was apparently abundant in the time of Amos. And so he calls out the people of the nation, the chosen people, that they they become comfortable and they have allowed that comfort to to make them complacent to the, the injustice that's happening in the world and often they're contributing to that injustice. And yet, God has called his people to not allow themselves to be uh, comfortable. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' most uh, famous sermon, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, I would assert that we have a messed up understanding of what it means to be blessed. And, and Jesus helps us to understand what it really means to be blessed. Sometimes we think blessed, we're blessed when we've got it all together. When the checking account is full, when you drive in the right car, when you've got the, the right family members, that's when you're blessed. Jesus helps us to redefine blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus knew that it is in times of distress when we can avoid the complacency that comes with a comfort, when we really fully have to rely on God. It's in those times that we're blessed. Amos chapter 5, verse 25. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Amos is trying to recall in the people's minds the time when they were in distress, when they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Remember that time. You didn't have to bring me offerings and sacrifices during that time. I was with you, and we were working together, and you were in the desert. We're also reminded of the words of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15, a passage that Adventists have interpreted to specifically talk about the age in which we live in, and it's absolutely true. I know your deeds. This is Jesus speaking to the church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. You know, a cold drink is delicious. A hot drink is delicious. You know what's not delicious? A lukewarm drink. I mean, some of you may like lukewarm drinks. Apparently, Jesus did not. 
I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. See, the complacency of comfort and, 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 and having it all together. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So we see the call of Amos and the call of Paul and the call of Jesus is that complacency is a danger for us all, especially Western Christians, who face the challenges, the challenges, and let us think of them that way, the challenges of comfortable circumstances, the challenge of the abundance of potential idols. We have so many idols to choose from, we can pick and choose. And the challenge of the proliferation of religious formalism. These are challenges to our faith. They're challenges to the heart of, of justice because when we become complacent and comfortable, it leads us to overlook those who are hurting and in need and maybe even to take advantage of them. And so the reality is that these elements are so uh, predominant that it can seem overwhelming. I, I mean, how do we get out of, a, 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 of, of, of being overwhelmed with a sense of wanting and feeling that we need comfortable circumstances and we have the abundance of potential idols and there's the proliferation of religious formalism? How do we overcome these challenges? Well, there is good news and that is that there is one who has already overcome these things. You know, Jesus wasn't complacent. He worked for justice. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told that Jesus came down from a mountainside and large crowds were following him. And a man, a man who was uh, disenfranchised, a man who was treated unjustly, a man who was of the lower class, a leper came. And he knelt before Jesus. And unlike everyone else who would have met this man, Jesus reached out and he touched him. And the man said, Lord, if you're willing, please make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately he was cleansed. See, Jesus was about transforming and changing people who had been mistreated. About lifting them up and helping them when they're in their times of need. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, a famous story of a woman who had been bleeding, who certainly was mistreated. She would was bleeding and therefore she was ceremonially unclean and nobody would want to talk to her or be around her, certainly. But Jesus was not perturbed about this because he cared about people who were hurting and in need. He cared about those who had been tr treated unjustly. And so he healed her and said, your faith has healed you. And Jesus, who on his first sermon that he ever preached in his hometown, read the words of Isaiah that say, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of, the, of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus was for the disenfranchised. Jesus was for those who had been treated unjustly. 
Jesus was for those who have been marginalized. And where is the church on these issues? That's the issue that we have to wrestle with today. Where are we on the prominent issues, the social issues that are going on in our world, our broken world today? Why are we often so silent? Even in his uh, sacrifice, Jesus was working for justice. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18, we read that a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Jesus, by the way, terrible at recruiting people, apparently. Somebody wants to be his follower. And what does he say? Foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Hey, you want to be a follower of Jesus? You really want to be a follower of Jesus? You might not know where you're going to sleep tomorrow night. Birds of the air, they have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The call to follow Jesus is a call to be uncomfortable sometimes. The call to be about justice in a broken world means that you, you, you might not know what's going to happen next, where your next meal is going to come from. And then we remember that in Jesus, a death still a champion for justice. John chapter 19 and verse 33. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. What did Amos say? Water flows down like justice. We have Jesus who dies on the cross for the broken, for the disenfranchised, for those who had been treated unjustly, and he is a fountain of water. A water flow for justice. Because of Jesus' work, the possibility for justice is alive and well in the world. And Jesus' invitation for everyone who is going to be a follower to him, for him, with him, is that foxes have holes. It's not going to be easy. Birds of the air have nests. You might not know where you're going to sleep tomorrow night, but at least God is with you. As we join together with the work of Jesus, as we embrace his work on our behalf, God can change our hardened heart, our heart that seeks comfort, our heart that is always looking for the next idol, the next shiny thing to give us comfort. God can transform our hearts that just wants to go about the forms and not really have life transformation in our religious experience. God can change those things as we embrace the work of Jesus, who did for us what we cannot do for ourselves who acted in, 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 as a champion of justice, as we embrace his work, God can transform and change us. Think of the work that he did in the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, we read the, these words. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, this is Paul writing, by the way, you who were formerly treated unjustly, you Gentiles, because you were uncircumcised, you now have been 
invited to be in Christ Jesus because in Christ Jesus we are all one. The blood of Christ is for everyone. This is Paul now saying. Those who have been treated unjustly before that when Jesus died, that idea of, of, of just and unjust is wiped away and everybody is invited into true justice. That same Paul who wrote those words experienced this himself because he was a, a champion of injustice. And he was transformed and changed himself. He writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is confessing that he had acted unjustly. He was a murderer, he was a killer, he was a champion for injustice, but when he embraced God's work, when Jesus showed up for him on a, a road and blinded him, that he was open enough to embrace what God could do, and God came in and transformed and changed him and gave him an entirely new perspective on how the world works. So that he, we went from being a champion of injustice, of suppression, of oppression, of hate and hurt, to one sharing good news that God has done for us that what we cannot do for ourselves. As we embrace the work of Jesus, the Spirit can work in us to compel us to fight injustice in the world, to speak up, to not fear for our own place or security in our life situation, that we can speak out to the injustices that are happening all around us, and that we can be a voice for the marginalized, a voice for the oppressed, a voice for those who have need. God wants to make you and me and this community lovers of justice, not complacent and self-satisfied, but vigilant for the kingdom and for fairness, and for justice in this broken world. In Jesus, may we become more vigilant to see God's justice enabled in this broken world, and may we live in loving community with God and with each other, empowered by His Spirit to participate with Him in His reconciling and restorative work through Jesus of healing broken relationships between God and all people, and between all members of the human family. Amen.